So this evening I'd like to speak about love as a kind of wisdom. The Buddha said that the benefit of cultivating loving-kindness is that one will be endowed with insight, perfected in right understanding or right view, belonging to the path of stream-winning. And in the Buddha's teaching in the Dhamma, stream-winning means that uh, one attains the liberation of the uh, first path of enlightenment that is called the path of streamlining. So the benefit of cultivating loving-kindness is that one will be endowed with insight, perfected in right understanding, right view, belonging to the path of streamlining associated with the supramundane virtue, that means virtue beyond the mundane, understanding deeply what leads to deep happiness and peace beyond the conditions of life, of this relative level of life. So last night, Steve talked about right understanding. I think he didn't even say that he was talking about it, but that's what he was talking about right understanding, right view. Uh, maybe he did, maybe he was asleep. <laughs> so this is the first path factor of the Eightfold Noble Path, right understanding, right view. It's seeing the nature of life so deeply in, in our own kind of experience of it as we go to all the levels of our mind and heart and we see how is it to live in alignment with how things are instead of kind of resisting it or fighting it through habit patterns of delusion, of greed, and of hatred. We understand, as we understand more deeply when we go through this practice in our personal and impersonal way, we start living in alignment with how life really is. And we create less suffering for ourselves and others. This is right view, right understanding. So we can say that when we see the cultivation of loving kindness as a basis for liberating insight to arise, that is also right understanding. And I'd like to describe how that can be for us, how we can take metta, or uh, develop loving-kindness in a way that we see that it's really leading to the end of suffering. It's not just kind of a patch-up job. It's not just kind of honey laid over, you know, other things, other difficulties of life. But it, it is a foundation for liberating insight. It's said in the ancient texts that love and wisdom are not separate. They dwell together in fellowship with one another, mingling like milk and water. So I, I love that analogy because I see when that happens. In the mornings, the cold mornings, I've been making chai for Steve and myself and with milk and water. And I see how, how beautifully it comes together and how it makes things you know, taste so smoothly with everything else in it mingling like milk and water so easily, this uh, metta, loving-kindness, 
and wisdom. So I've taken most of this teaching from a teaching from Bodhagosha. He was a, an Indian monk uh, who lived in, who went to Sri Lanka and he wrote what we call the Sudhimaga, the path of purification. It's a commentary on the Buddhist teachings. And there's some magical, wonderful stories about this, but I won't go into that now, maybe for later. But he talked about how the development of loving kindness has three purposes in our life, and purposes that lead us and help us, support us on our everyday living, and purposes that form the basis, as I said, for liberation, for enlightenment, for living a life that is deeply beyond the suffering of this life, the ups and downs. So the development of metta having three purposes. The first purpose being a sense of well-being, a deep sense of well-being. The second purpose being spiritual protection. And the spiritual protection on our everyday life level. And the third one being the basis for insightful liberation. So I'd like to fill out those three. The first one, a sense of well-being. When we see for ourselves how when we cultivate this friendly, benevolent, kind heart that's able to offer goodwill generously, without expectation for reward, without expectation for even recognition or thanks, uh, it endows us with a great sense of well-being to be able to give without expecting anything in return, we have to have a sense of kind of deep inner stability for that. You know, I know for myself when um, I've given things in, in the world to my children, my grandchildren, to uh, my loved ones like Steve, people around me, people I don't know very well, that in the beginning there was, and even now, there's still some, oh, you know, are they going to acknowledge it? Are they going to say thank you? Are they, even that, you know, as a sense of expectation, kind of sullies the heart, sullies the mind. And when I don't feel that at all, just the ability to just give without expecting anything in return, I feel a great inner support in my heart, a great stability, a great strength in myself to be able to do that. To be able to love someone without expecting that person to love me back in any way. Sometimes I feel that and sometimes I don't. And when I do feel that, I have a sense, like I say, of great strength within me. So it endows us with this strength, with this ability to be a blessing to ourselves. And how good is that? You know, to really feel that we're a blessing to ourselves, not just to others. Because when we feel that, then we really know that we're, we can be a blessing to others. And they, people around us, people who really matter to us in the closeness of our lives, people who look up to us or look to us for their kind of support on a mutual, equal level. It, it really helps them. There's a lot of 
what we all do in our beingness in life, that even without words, we have a, a, a great opportunity to give people something when we can be like that ourselves. I think all of us have been given in some ways that feedback that it's not what we said, but it's how we work that helped others. Just how we were through a great difficulty, through our own difficulty, or through a difficulty of others, how we could just be there and exude that great inner strength. So this comes from a great sense of well-being, this uh, feeling that we're really a blessing, that's a blessing from inside, outside, to outside. And it, of course, it comes back to us. It gives us the courage to carry on through the hardships of our life when, when we're not feeling that we're treated well or we're treated with justice or equality or a way of people... Uh, we just don't feel right in, in, with our friends even or with a crowd of people that in ourselves we can feel a sense of rightness and we don't need to need it so much from others, but we feel that sense within ourselves. It's so important to have that sense of connection with our own hearts, which as human beings we often don't have. I, I think I can speak for myself, but I know that from hearing the hearts of others that um, we don't always feel that deep sense of strength in ourselves to be able to stand in a crowd when we're not, we don't feel that we're so accepted or that people or our closest, people closest to us don't understand what's really going on in our own hearts because of their own actions or ways of being. But there are moments when we can feel in ourselves that great sense of well-being that it's okay, even if they don't understand. Because I can understand my own heart. I can understand how I feel. And that's what really matters in our lives. It's so important to feel that sense of connection with ourselves because we feel alive and not dead. We feel that, you know, we don't need someone else to confirm us or to understand us in order to feel that we're a human being that has every right to be alive and breathe and has every right to happiness in our own lives. When we can feel that right within ourselves and not need it from others. It's so hard. I mean, it's I can't say that I live from that place all the time. Um, you know, I live from a place of knowing that that's needed and, and feeling it when it's there and seeing its benefit and its strength when it is there. It's alive when we feel the ability to appreciate that goodness in ourselves. That's why it's that first part of the metta practice that we do, appreciating our own goodness, and then, then we go on to appreciate the goodness of others. This in itself is such a humongous strength to be able to do, 
I think for, for me, the whole reason for the metta practice is to be able to go through that part, to be able to really ponder and reflect on the goodness in my own heart, the strength in my own heart, and then to be able to see the goodness, to acknowledge the goodness in, in the others, in the benefactor, in the dear friend, in the neutral people, They're, the inherent goodness of the people we don't know very well. And of course, of those who are difficult for us, the last one of the five individuals. This very part alone in practicing metta is so strengthening to our lives. It's so connecting, sometimes even more connecting to me than saying all those phrases over and over again, to just stay with that one part. Can I see the goodness, the strength in my own heart? Can I see it in the hearts of people that I don't feel sometimes a connection with? So important, so important. Even if you can just stay with that, it's a huge step in connecting with ourselves, in our ability to connect, with our ability to know that for others. Not just to know them, but to know in our own hearts. We, it's possible for us to know that in others, to know their own goodness. So that sense of connection with ourselves, the sense of our ability to see the goodness all around, all around us, this is a sense of well-being. Because we're in that kind of web of humanity that we can't deny. We're not cutting anyone off. And we're fed by it. It's all those connections are coming to nourish our hearts and minds uh, on, on this path of liberation, on this path of feeling the fullness of who we are as human beings. And when we're disconnected with ourselves, with our own hearts, we don't feel that fullness. There's something missing. There's something lacking. And sometimes I think that this is where a lot of the craving comes from a lot of the wanting of something other than what we have. Sometimes what we have is, is better even than good enough, but we're looking for happiness in different places, in all the wrong places. We want happiness and we don't feel that connection to happiness in ourselves. So craving, that the feeling of emptiness arises, that kind of emptiness that's like a vacuum, not that emptiness of the Dharma, where the emptiness is a fullness also, but we feel a kind of vacuum that we want to fill up. And we go out looking for it in things to taste, things to hold, to feel the pleasantness of, things to smell, things to see, things, all kinds of things to fill up our life with craving all kinds of ways of being. Pleasant sounds, experiences, subtle experiences of power, sex, and all those things that kind of lead to suffering, uh, actually through their way, their habitual power of it too, that when we crave something, we get it, if we feel that um, momentary sense of completion, of satisfaction, and so it feeds 
that habit pattern of looking for that again and again and again. And this comes from not really feeling that sense of connection in our own hearts, that sense of fullness that's already there. So we have this inner sense of poverty that we tend to live with when we don't have this connection with ourselves, this feeling of a vacuum of emptiness that's there. So it's such a hard thing to realize and stay connected with in our lives, that sense of our own hearts, our own goodness. I find it within myself too, not connecting with my own love. I I know I'm a loving person, but I see sometimes that I'm not connected with it. So maybe sometimes we don't feel worthy of love. I don't know, I'm just stating some ways it is for me. Maybe it is for you too. Sometimes we don't feel worthy of real love, of that true, deep, unconditional love that's there already. You can't see sometimes. Perhaps we fear exposing our vulnerabilities if we really love, if we really open our hearts. We'll see things about ourselves or about life or about others that we don't want to see, that it's hard to face. Maybe we think it'll make us too weak or too sappy if we're, you know, we're loving. Maybe it's kind of a, a not a strength, really. It's something else. Maybe we're too open. With love, there is connection. And sometimes with connection, you know, there is a feeling of loss of our autonomy when we have a connection with another person. And we don't really feel a sense of our own autonomy. It takes, it takes practice to feel our deep love, have a connection with others, and have a sense of our own autonomy at the same time. But we don't have to be controlled by another. So this is a very hard, hard realization that we're all faced with. When we want that deep connection, we want that sense of well-being, but these are the, the opposites that we face. When, we, when we're wanting that deeply, but we don't know, you know what's underneath that's kind of fighting it. In our metta meditation, we often come across these places where we've, we're fearful or of exposing ourselves, or we, we just um, we fear connection somehow, in some way, because of loss of autonomy or we feel unworthy from whatever our uh, you know, family of origin life may have brought to us. So it's, it's interesting in metta practice to open to all of those ways, all of those vulnerabilities that we feel, and to bring a sense of metta to that place, a sense of gentleness to that place. It's why metta is so utterly important, why love is important on the path of liberation. I don't think I'd be able to live without love. 
on the path of liberation. I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't be able to walk this path. I, I do remember a, a time when I was practicing with Upandita. It was Upandita, my, one of my main teachers. It was a very difficult time for me. This was many years ago, in the mid-80s. And I was, uh, I was going through a long retreat with him. And it was one of the most, I think it was the most difficult thing in my life to do, to go through this retreat, looking back. And um, so I was taking instruction from him. And I was doing Vipassana. And it was uh, a time when I felt like my limbs were tied to four horses. And they were pulling my limbs in all different directions. And I was going through this pain in the body that was beyond um, description. Couldn't, I couldn't even tell you what it was. It was terrible. And so I was going to him and saying, this is what's happening. And he was kind of happy that I was going through that experience, <laughs> you know. So I, I remember falling in a puddle on the floor and saying, I can't do this. I, I'm going to go home. I have to go home. I happened to be in Australia at the time. It was a long retreat. And I knew I just couldn't take a plane. But I had to say it anyway and complain, you know, I'm going to go home. And I kind of really meant it in a way. I thought if he said, okay, I would pick, pack my bags, but I knew he wouldn't. And so I asked him at that time if I should do some metta meditation. And um, he said no. But I went out and I knew I had to do metta meditation. So I did metta. I went to the garden and I sat down and I did, I did metta meditation for myself. And I thought, I know what I need. He doesn't know what I need. I need love. I really need love. And so that's what I gave myself. And I was able to get through that time. And so later when I said I did metta to him, he said, okay. <laughs> he always had a lot of trust in me. So when we're willing to take a risk when we're willing to take the risk of loving ourselves and really loving others, you know, in a way that's without boundaries, whether they love us or not, or whether they love themselves or not, or whether they love the commitment or not, when we're able to do that, it really shows our courage, it really shows our strength in ourselves to open and to commit without a guarantee that things are going to turn out a certain way for us or for anything. But when we have such a response to life, um, it brings something to us that's so beyond what we could ever think about or know in our lives. Um, beautiful poem by Maria Ilo. It's called In Need. To love oneself, why is this the hardest lesson? Why so afraid, you tattered birds? Who has so shorn you of your wings, said it was bad to fly, selfish to bask, wrong to breathe? How you hop in your broken cages, dare not fly into that gold which lay within. 
and hold such store for the world. Oh, not through committees only, but singing your song at dawn. Only at death's door sometimes does the dare come through. I am in need and love, unbounded, waiting to reciprocate. So this is that great, deep, actual need that we have in a good way of feeling connected to the whole web of life, starting with ourselves. And really that's where the strength comes from, that deep sense of well-being in ourselves. Knowing that unconditional ability to just give without needing to receive. And so this is the first purpose of loving-kindness, to know that that deep inner sense of well-being, the first purpose of loving-kindness. And the second purpose of loving-kindness is protection. It's protection from greed, from attachment, from fear and hatred, from its many forms. It gives us the ability to see clearly So it's protection from delusion. It's protect from... Delusion is is the opposite of seeing clearly. In delusion, we're seeing, but we're not seeing clearly. It's protection from ignorance. Protection from, you know, ignoring what we need to look at. So it's protection from ignorance as well. Ignorance and delusion being slightly different things. This afternoon I talked about how we're assaulted by the habit patterns of our own mind. And uh, someone said that to me recently. And I thought, yeah, that's how it goes. I, I feel assaulted sometimes by my own mind. It's not from outer things. It's from inner experiences. You know, something can happen out, outside of us and we translate it in a certain way and then we feel assaulted by our translation of that when it might not even be true what we're seeing. It's just how we're interpreting it. I do that. I can see that that happens. I can see it happens around me with loved ones, you know grown children, adult children, (laughs) um, grandchildren, how we kind of get assaulted by our own fears. The habit tendencies of the untrained heart and mind causes so much pain to ourselves and to others. And then we end up having others needing to defend themselves, we needing to defend ourselves to others, and it becomes just a big mess, you know, it's so complicated. So metta is that kind of training that gives us the protection of seeing beyond greed, beyond attachment, beyond fear, beyond hatred, beyond illusion, beyond ignorance. We see it with soft, clear, loving eyes. We're able to take it in. It gives us that kind of protection that we need. It said that metta deconditions and weakens 
the far enemy of metta, which is hatred, or many different forms of hatred, aversion, resistance, judging, harshness, worry, rage, and all the different intensities and ways of being. That's a far enemy. It's said the far enemy because you can see it, sense it from afar. It doesn't have to be near. So it protects us from that because when, when we see it in our own hearts, when we see the habit patterns in our own hearts and we bring loving kindness to that very place in our own hearts, this is why it's so important to start with oneself and even to end with oneself in the loving kindness practice. Because so much of the time, over half of the practice in our lives has to do with bringing loving kindness to our own harshness, to the harshness we bring to ourselves and to the world. If we can just soften around that, if we can just bring a, a deconditioning moment to that place, to weaken that, to bring a place of kindness to that place in ourselves, it's a great service to others because then it doesn't have to come out of the mouth or through um, our actions in any way. So it also deconditions what is called the near enemy. The near, it's called the near enemy because sometimes it's so close that we can't even see it. And that's attachment or, uh, or wanting. It's not the wanting or attachment to things that lead to um, the end of suffering. Like we can want liberation or we can want to practice metta. Um, if we have attachment to it, of course, that's different. You know, that's kind of grasping onto it. But there is such a wanting that, the wanting things that are, that lead to the end of suffering. So let's not get kind of split hairs with that, with that word. We know what it means in a good sense and we can know what it means in an unskillful sense. In an unskillful sense, this kind of wanting that leads to the, to suffering, to places that cause suffering in ourselves and others, this is the near enemy, wanting, craving, attachment, attachment to our need to be right, attachment to um, things and to ways of being that are harmful to ourselves and others. And when we know that our own minds are doing that, bringing softness there, bringing gentleness right there. And this is why the the Vipassana practice the, uh, that we do is so important, the practice of bringing mindfulness to whatever is happening, because then we're clear. We can be honest with ourselves when attachment, aversion, wanting, harshness is there. We can see it and say, oh, let's bring a little softness to this place. So it's said to decondition and weaken those places when we bring that kind of softness, gentleness there to the near or far enemies of metta. And it reconditions the skillful. So when we, when we know we're in that place and we make the choice in our, in our daily lives to when we see that what's happening is skillful and we make a choice to bring the skillful in, to bring metta in, then it reconditions the mind 
It deconditions that habit pattern and reconditions the skillfulness of something wholesome like loving kindness. So it's all in the support of this deep sense of protection. It's one of the four protective practices, metta, loving kindness. So now we see how metta is actually this wise intention, which is one of the Eightfold Noble Path. Wise intention, right thought. It's the thought of metta, the intention of bringing metta, the choice, the intention of bringing metta into your life. And that's why it's so important to practice it in the way that we do, sitting on the cushion here. It's like going to the gym and working on certain muscle groups. Well, this is the wholesome muscle group that we're working on here. The skillful development of that. So there are more times, um, because many of like many of you have practiced metta for many years, and there are more times that I see it coming up spontaneously. Not that I have to think about it and make a choice, or not because my teacher said this is good, but because it's been practiced, it's been on the cushion and in daily life, and I see it comes up on its own. That I can, um, I call it, you know, getting the, the Dharma duct tape and putting it on my mouth when something unskillful is going to come out, something unmetal-like is going to come out, so I can <coughs> refrain and re and refrain and then reframe that moment and say something different, say something new, something wholesome, something helpful. So I see that it's natural for that to happen. So it's said in the, in the ancient texts, uh, talks about how this natural goodwill, when we see it happening in ourselves, it makes one's life grow like a tree, useful, generous, and noble. I found that um, so helpful to, to learn about when I read stories that the Buddha told or commentaries that other great beings have told about the Buddhist teaching. Um, Steve and I went to a Mount a Saint Rainier National Forest, uh, Mount Rainier National Forest, just before we came to the, this retreat at this place in the summertime. And um, what we were interested in doing is we wanted to see the the patriarchs and the matriarch trees that were in that forest. And some of those trees, a uh, few of them, were up to a thousand years old or almost a thousand years old. And we were really able to go near them and touch them and stand next to them. And it was really wonderful to be able to do that. A lot of them 500, 700, 800 years old. So we, it was like we went to visit our teachers, you know, making that kind of pilgrimage to the ancient ones, to the great ones, how much they, they have seen or experienced the same air, you know, as some of the great sages of the world. So they exuded a sense of nobility, you know, just kind of standing up tall through all they've experienced. And 
this kind, these kinds of storms through lightning. Some of them you would see partly burned through a stroke of lightning, but still part of it living. Uh, some of them with great holes in them from something or other, but still alive somehow. So a great sense of stillness and calm. When we walked up um, pathways with other hikers, there was such a great sense of stillness and calm that it silenced everyone. You know, we would just stop talking. And we just fe feel the stillness around us. It was really, really wonderful to, to be able to do that. You could see that um, their life, their their taking in of what they took in of the air and then breathing out the oxygen gave great purification to the earth. You know, how wonderful is that? That the purification that came from these trees uh, of the earth and then the giving of the oxygen of life to all around us. How generous is that? You know, just being able to, to sense the nobility of that taking in what, what was around and then giving out goodness. And just reminded me of how metta is and how the ancient text talks about metta that way. The natural goodwill makes one's life grow like a tree, useful, generous, noble. Some old trees, they're not only old, they were dead. You know, they were just laying flat down because they fell over. But new trees were growing out of them. And sometimes the new trees were just greater than the circumference of the trees that they grew in. And it was, it was beautiful to see life coming from that, from the nourishment that the dead trees gave, giving new growth, even in their death. And just the teaching of that, you know, no words, but just seeing the teaching of that taking in the teaching and feeling nourished by that very teaching in silence. How long they've given to the world, to my own lungs, to breathe and to live and to give life for me to help others and for all of us to do the same in the same way. How many difficulties have they forbeared in their lives and still live? So metta is likened to a great tree, giving out the wholesome, beneficial energy, supporting goodness and maturation all around in every way. So it's said that in the same way metta brings forth and ripens the goodness within us. And uh, there, there are what is called these ten paramis, these ten wholesome, and skillful, beautiful states of mind that are potentially uh, ripened, can be ripened in all of us. Paramis. Um, they are the forces that bring us to the end of suffering. They are generosity, virtue, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, renunciation, equanimity, wisdom, and metta all of these ten. And it's said that metta ripens all of the other beautiful qualities of the mind and the heart. This one parami of metta 
can ripen all the others. Of course, they all support one another. But this one has the greatest power to ripen all the others. So all of these that it brings in to our lives, all of these other nine beautiful qualities, are spiritual protection also from the forces of greed and hatred. So there is a sense of a deep inner sense of well-being in ourselves, a sense of um, strength in ourselves, a sense of protection. And the last purpose is that of cultivating uh, a wise uh, basis for insightful liberation to take place. Said that, and, and I feel it too, it's, it really comes strong with my own life, that to be able to sense love in myself, to be able to give love to others, is very important for me, for all of us in our lives, to be able to do that. To be able to really know love is a, so utterly helpful to us for liberation. It said that the purer the mind and the heart, the closer it is to the true nature of life. When we're not, when the minds and our minds and hearts are not veiled by greed, hatred, or delusion, we're not sullied by it. We're so much, we're that much closer to to liberation, to enlightenment itself. It's an incredible force field that we can live our lives from, that we can kind of be the place where we can grow from there more and more. We can cultivate this insightful liberation, liberation into the true nature of life by cultivating loving-kindness and all the beautiful qualities that come with it. This is the soil from which we can grow. So in the meantime, it promotes a sense of well-being, protection in ourselves and all others around us, like that great tree we saw. So there's some this Metta Sutta, all of you, or much, many of you have heard of the Metta Sutta. These were the words uttered by the Buddha. And I, I feel when I hear those words or I read those words, I feel a direct transmission and guidance from the Buddha of how to live a life of a good human being. And um, it gives direction to us gives a sense of how to do it, where to do it, when to do it. And so we can listen carefully. I'd just like to read it and make a few comments about it as I read. So this translation is from uh, a colleague of ours, a great teacher, Gil Fransdale, from the Bay Area. And also there's some, some parts of this is a translation from uh, the Buddha Gosha, actually. So the first part of it says, 
to reach the state of peace, to reach the state of peace. And so this is um, talking about the acknowledgement of how it is the basis for liberation, to reach the state of peace. And I like the way it starts off with that because it acknowledges our common aspiration, that we all want that in our lives. We say it in different ways, but we all want peace, to reach the state of peace. We live in this turbulent, chaotic world. But we see for ourselves here in the quietness of retreat that this chaos, this turbulent world, all comes from one place. It comes from individual hearts and minds. So this is a place to heal that and to find skillfulness to bring to the world in that healing. So to reach the state of peace, one skilled in the good, that's the second line, one skilled in the good. So I thought about that, one skilled in the good, and I realized such of such high importance this is. And we as parents and elders to young ones, even if we're not parents, as we are grandparents also, we are teachers to those who are younger, we're we're offering how it is to be skilled in the good when we can know it for ourselves. It may not be a course that we take in college <laughs> or in a university in one skilled in the good, but it's something that we can share with one another when we know it for ourselves deeply. To reach the state of peace, one skilled in the good should be honest and upright straightforward and easy to speak to, gentle and not proud. So all of these are great qualities. How can we be straightforward and um, say words that are, like Pandita says, short and to the point, but with our, you know, with our gentleness of voice and with the quality of loving kindness behind it. We can just say it like it is, without hurting one another. Straightforward, easy to speak to. We know that uh, when we don't feel that we're easy to speak to, how is it for us inside? You know, when we feel that whatever we hear from another is just a criticism, instead of, can we just really hear what they're saying? how it's maybe hurting their hearts instead of taking it as a criticism. So can we be easy to speak to? This is a training for us. How can we keep our minds open, our hearts open, when we're in, and not feel so defended all the time, or some of the time? Gentle and not proud. And just the ability to be gentle with ourselves and not take things in as a complaint or criticism. Not be so proud that we, we can't hear sometimes when uh, you know people are saying something that it's hard when, when I go through this and it concerns the other person. Can we be humble enough to take it in instead of 
feeling that it comes as a kind of an affront. I feel that um, I do that sometimes. You know, I don't want people to say anything bad about me because I feel proud. Contented and easily supported. I mean, this is a this is a hard one for the for our. We're, we're living at the top of the heap, as Steve says all the time. You know, when we, we go to any, even not a third world country, we see that we're so privileged. We're just so privileged. And yet, you know, so we want more and more. How can we just live in a way that, as they say in the East, contentment is the greatest wealth. As they say in the Asian countries, and probably other places too, but I hear it most there in Asia. Contentment is the greatest wealth. I remember this one saying though, it was a, I think this is a Jewish saying, but um, let me know if I'm wrong. One of my friends said this, who is happy? And this is one of the sayings of contentment. Who is happy? Those content with their own portion was the answer. Those content with their own portion. Is, is that the same in the Jewish tradition? But I heard those content with their own portion. <laughs> I didn't get it for a while, you know. And then I finally, I, I clarified it and I said, really? <laughs> Living lightly, living lightly. I mean, even us in the Dharma, I know a lot of, many of us here, quite a few of us share the Dharma. And it's hard to live lightly, isn't it? I mean, we're so busy. Not overly busy is the second part of that sentence. Living lightly, not overly busy. We can get so busy, in, in, even in the Dharma. It's, it's amazing. People, I, I often say that people think that we're kind of, walking in and on a cloud and sitting on our cushion here, but it's like there are lots to take care of, you know, there are so many venues that were and yogis and this and that were it's it's not what one might think it is. <laughs> Wise with senses calmed, not arrogant and without greed for supporters. This was, this was kind of written for a lot of those people who were kind of monastics. And so, um, you know, there's this, what is that term, Steve, when you, when you kind of, um, there's a poly word when you, when you kind of have greed for supporters. Well, it's not Isa, it's like... Macharya. Macharya, yeah. Yeah, you have you, you want your supporters and you don't want to share them with others. <laughs> that, it, it happens, you know. Stinginess. Stinginess, yeah. For supporters. Yeah. So not arrogant without greed for supporters. Not them not let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would criticize. And when I when I read that and, and reflect on that I, I oftentimes think about, oh, what, 
what would my people I respect the most, what would they think of me if they knew that I did this or I did that? And I remember a, a, a Dharma friend of mine, she also offers the Dharma um, in her neighborhood. And she, she said during a difficult time in her life that um, this was a long time ago, she had a crush on somebody and she was going through a difficult time in her marriage and had a crush on someone. But what stopped her from, you know, she just had a crush, that's all, nothing else, no, no, no connection with that person or anything. But she came to me and she said, I, I have to confess, she, she's uh, Asian, and we like to do confessions, you know, do I have to confess? Well, what is it? She said, I have a crush on someone. And I said, oh, okay, but it's only in your mind, right? Without <laughs> doing anything about it. She said, oh, no, no, no. I wouldn't do anything about it. It would be bad advertising for the Dharma. <laughs> and then she told me that um, if Upandita ever knew, I, I even thought that that would not be good. That. She, she was thinking that. And that's what I think of sometimes. What would my elders think of me if, if this or that? You know? So, not that I even went there, so. <laughs> so, let them, uh, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would criticize. Let them cultivate the thought May all beings be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart. I love that. May all beings be happy and secure, happy at heart. And I remember once I brought um, Manindraji, one of our teachers, to the aquarium in San Francisco. And I heard the same story about Kala Rinpoche, great Tibetan. And Manindra went around and uh, this right Manindra went to uh, Kala Rinpoche, that's right, too. He went and they tapped on the, the windows of the fishes, the fishes, the big and the small, and he said, be happy, be happy. <laughs> and just with great delight, you know, and it was really, 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 really authentic. It wasn't like just making a show. It was so authentic, the connection, you know. I just really felt it. I'd be embarrassed to do that, you know, what would people around me think? <laughs> kind of embarrassed. No, I might do that. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, let them cultivate that thought. I mean, can we really cultivate that thought where we can just say that to anybody, to a fish or to people? So, um, this part is, uh, you know, to whom do we cultivate? Whatever living beings there may be, without exception, whether weak or strong, tall, large, medium or short, tiny or big, seen or unseen, near or far, born or seeking birth, may they all be happy. So this is this is saying to whom shall we shall we offer that to? Let none de deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none wish others harm in resentment or in hate. And this then the one example the Buddha gave. 
Just as her, just as with her own life, a mother shields her child, her only child from hurt. Let all embracing thoughts for all beings be yours. So how do we do it? This is this part of the sutta. How do we do it? Toward, in, in what ways? Cultivate a limitless heart of goodwill for all throughout the cosmos, in all its height, in all its depth and breadth. Love that is untroubled and beyond hatred or enmity. So when do we do it? As you stand, walk, sit, or lie down, so long as you are awake, pursue this awareness with all your might. It is called the divine abiding here and now. And the results are this. One who is virtuous, holding no more to wrong views, endowed with insight, a pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all greed, will not be reborn again. So this is the beauty of love, of the wisdom. Let's sit for a moment.